0: I'm going to pray for us, so Father God in heaven, thank you so much for this time together right now as we look into your word, and Lord, I'm keenly aware that there are as many applications of this passage today as there are people in this room, and so Holy Spirit, our truth teacher, please custom design a word for every individual within the sound of my voice today. Uh, Speak through me, may you say the things that you want said. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians. Great book, huh? Good stuff so far. We have seen uh, that Paul is writing this letter to a congregation of Christians who lived in the ancient city of Philippi. And when we looked and walked through chapter 1 together, we saw that he wrote it while under house arrest in Rome. Uh, He probably dictated this letter to his young companion, Timothy, who was there with him, and of course, the ever-present grizzled Roman guards chained to him 24-7, and think about it, they had this experience of being the very first to hear the holy scriptures coming out of Paul's mouth, so they were highly privileged and probably didn't even realize it to be the first to hear the word of God. We've seen that Paul loved this church. He loved the people of the Philippian congregation. The letter has a positive and joyful vibe to it, doesn't it? We've noted that Paul had much joy in his heart as he thought about these people. This was apparently a pretty healthy church, judging from the tone and the content of the letter. It's not like the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Galatians, where Paul was constantly having to correct bad theology and the bad behavior that arises from bad theology. Nevertheless, this church was not a perfect church. By the way, there aren't any perfect churches. Not then and not now. If you're looking for a church, searching or church shopping, as some people call it, and you're looking for the perfect church that's a perfect fit for you and your family, you're bound to be disappointed no matter where you go because the perfect church does not exist. And as one guy said, if you ever do find the perfect church, don't you join it because you'll mess it up. (laughs) Well, the church of Philippi was healthy and strong, but it wasn't perfect. There were a few issues. And the primary issue seems to be the presence of some disunity, some lack of harmony within the congregation. We're not exactly sure what the main point of contention was. Paul doesn't really mention it doesn't appear to have been a major theological or doctrinal issue, because Paul certainly would have addressed that. So was it the color of the new carpet then that people were taking sides on, or how loud the worship band was, or how the pastor dressed on Sundays? We're not really told. You might laugh, but churches have divided over some pretty stupid stuff. I read about a church down in Louisiana that split over the fact that unequal portions of potato salad were given out at the church picnic. I mean, that's a big deal, right? I heard about another church that split over the pronunciation of a Hebrew letter. Like, really? <laughs> well, there was some disunity in this church, and the first hint we get of that comes at the end of chapter 1, where Paul wrote this in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear the plea for unity, oneness? But when I, when I read that, I thought, well, this is interesting, because what Paul is revealing here is that unity in the church is primarily a gospel issue at its core congregational discord is not a carpet issue or a volume issue or a fashion issue it's a gospel issue he wrote christians conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel means christians standing firm in one spirit When a congregation gets divided and starts taking sides that is evidence that the gospel of christ has not yet taken up residence in the heart and in the center of that congregation's life the gospel has a unifying effect on a church that truly is believing it and we're going to see that more clearly as we walk through chapter two together now The flow of Paul's instruction here in the first few verses of chapter 2 is very insightful. It starts with us, collectively us. It moves to you and I as individuals and then ends with focusing on him. So us to you and me to him. What that tells us is that the overall unity of the church is dependent upon each of us as individuals being attuned to him. To Christ. That'll get clearer as we move through this together. So let's note a couple of things. First, let's look at Paul's plea for unity, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. He wrote this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do you see the plea there for unity? Come together, be one, be united, be like-minded. Now there's something interesting here I think we need to note. Let me ask you a question. If someone that you know needs to change something in their life, what are the different approaches that you can try and take to motivate them to change? You ever think about that? Well, there's guilt, right? You can just pile on the guilt, see if that works. There's putting the fear of God in them, threatening doom and destruction if they don't change. There's offering them candy or money, you know, carrot and stick, some sort of incentive like that, positive reinforcement. There's just telling them what to do, like issuing orders or commands, just do this because it's the right thing to do. I think it's very interesting how Paul approaches these people. He's not pulling rank like he did with the Corinthians. He's not threatening destruction like he did with the Galatians. It's more of a a, a plea, an appeal, more like a a dad than a commanding officer. It's like he's saying, my my children, if you've experienced any benefits at all of knowing Jesus and being in the family of God, then I plead with you to come together and be like-minded and be unified. I point that out to say that some of us only have one tool in our toolbox when it comes to helping other people change. And while it may be effective with some people in some situations, it's likely to be destructive in others. One of our elders made a statement recently, I haven't forgot it, he said this, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Think about that. Paul's discipleship tool belt had a lot of different tools in it, and he was learning to use them well in a variety of different situations. You understand what I'm saying? Here he's making an appeal based on the benefits of being in the family of God. Notice the five incentives that he bases this appeal on. Five incentives or motivations for pursuing unity. First, the encouragement of being united with Christ the comfort we receive from Christ's loving us, the fellowship that the Holy Spirit creates among believers, the tenderness and compassion that Christians experience from knowing God. And then if none of those incentives were enough, Paul added a personal one, do it for me, he said. <laughs> Fulfill my joy. In other words, hey, you guys bring me a lot of joy. When I think about you, my joy tank is about 90% full. You can fill up that last 10% and top off my joy tank if you'll just resolve your conflicts and come together and be unified. His tone is not harsh or demanding, not with this church. He's, like I said, like a loving father trying to correct an errant child. and he, He appeals to them based on how good they've had it being in the family. It's like he's saying, since we've all been blessed so much, let's come together. Notice how he describes unity, the phrases he uses in the body of Christ. Four descriptions of it. Be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit, be one in purpose. Well, that's a good description of unity, isn't it? Be one, oneness, like-mindedness. Wouldn't you agree that if everybody in the church, everyone was like-minded about Jesus Christ, shared the same love equally for all of the members of the church, If everybody had the same passion and embraced the same mission, wouldn't you agree that there would likely be a sweet, sweet unity in a church like that? I think so. I think, when I think about this church, New Life, I think we've tasted some of this unity. I think we've, by the grace of God, been able to experience some of it. We know we're not perfect here at this church, we know we're not a perfect church. But you know, compared to some other church situations that I've been in, we are very blessed that God has graced us here with such a widespread, prevalent sense of unity. It's really somewhat rare in the church world. Maybe you can attest to that from your experience. I can only believe that it's the work of God in us, uniting us around a shared passion for Jesus. You know what else When the members of a congregation are truly becoming like-minded, kindred spirits, passionately loving Jesus together, then the little conflicts that will inevitably arise end up being seen for what they really are. They they end up getting right-sized. Do you know what I mean? And conflicts are going to arise. Whenever you put sinful, fallen human beings together, whether it's in a family or a work group or a small group or a church, there's going to be friction. There's going to be some conflicts that arise, but... When a church is like-minded and and shares a common love for Jesus, instead of casting a huge shadow over the whole church, those little things are seen as the minor irritations that we should probably expect when we put human beings together. And and when you have that perspective, then you say things like this. Well, you know what? I know we're at odds with each other right now, but but in the grand scheme of things, this is really not that important, so let's work it out, right? In humility, addressing these conflicts, repenting as needed, forgiving one another so that we can get back to the main business of worshiping Christ and spreading his gospel together. So Paul makes a an appeal, a firm but fatherly appeal for unity in the church based on the wonderful benefits we all experience from Christ's love and being part of his family. That's the us part. That's the message to us. Come together, be like-minded, kindred spirits. But then he gets personal because he knew that unity can be really fragile and that each one of us has a part in contributing to the unity of the whole church. And so if someone in Philippi had heard what Paul said, and then asks, okay, Paul, all right, I I get it, so what's my part? How do I contribute to this unity that you're speaking about? And then here's his answer, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude or your mindset should be the same as that of Christ, Christ Jesus. And so what's he doing? Well, he's laying out a pathway to unity for each of us to follow. And it's really a way of thinking, isn't it? A mindset. I can take you to the exact spot where I was on the campus of Liberty University many years ago, standing at the base of the steps leading up to dorm 14 when God the Holy Spirit lifted Philippians 2 4 off the page and landed it on my heart so hard it nearly knocked me over I'd just freshly given my life to Jesus Christ I was in a dorm full of guys who were on fire for Christ many of us were memorizing the book of Philippians together and I remember on that sunny afternoon getting ready to make my way up those stairs. It's as if the Holy Spirit pile driver, wham, knocked me over. And the way I had memorized verse 4 went like this Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That was like a ton of bricks landing on me. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had God take something off the pages of Scripture and just smash your heart? I was like laid out. And it was as if God was saying, Steve, this is not how you've been living your life, focused on others. No, no, no. You've been living your life focused on you. And what could I say? He was right. The Lord's generally right, right? Yeah, you're right. My life up to this point's been all about me. It's been about making, you know, lifting up my name. It's been about being right and being viewed as right and being highly regarded and and making my point and winning and coming out ahead and being heard and making sure my opinion got considered. And I said, you're right. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. And I I sense the Lord saying, Steve, I'm going to change your mindset. And it's not going to be you that does it because you can't. I'm, I'm, I'm going to enter into your life and change your focus from self-focused to others-focused. And you say, well, okay, so are you now all others-oriented and a big servant and all that? I'm, I'm still a work in progress like we all are, but I can tell you that my life changed forever from that day. If you'd been a person who knew me before that day and after that day, you would have to conclude there is a God in heaven who is changing that guy's life. Paul is laying out a pathway to spiritual unity by explaining the attitudes, the mindsets that help unity and that hijack unity. And there are, without a doubt, unity killers, right? Attitudes and outlooks and ways of relating to each other that just sabotage spiritual unity. And Paul pinpoints several of them. Do you see them? Do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition. You could call that a competitive spirit. The word in the original refers to rivalry. And what he's saying is, you know, hey, competition, that's good, but leave it out on the field. Leave it out on the court. Don't bring competition into your relational world. It has no place there. This refers to the egotistical mindset that seeks to promote one's own agenda over everybody else's, thinking that my cause is the best cause, my opinion is the only one that needs to be heard, my group should get the best room, my way of doing things is the only way to do it, and the whole world would be better off if everyone just saw things the way I do. Selfish ambition. and we've already seen this in Philippians. Paul's already referred to this attitude. Remember those guys who were preaching the gospel but with impure motives? Remember talking about them? What he said was they had selfish ambition. They were trying to make a name for themselves and claim some of the Christian spotlight while Paul was out of commission. Selfish ambition. It's the kind of self-seeking that inevitably leads to fighting and quarrels and arguments and conflicts and strife and taking sides. It kills unity. It kills like-mindedness whether we're talking about our marriages our families our work relationships our small group our church selfish ambition is deadly i've been looking for the right time and place to say something and i think this is it you know there are some people who just create strife everywhere they go and you hear that they've been somewhere and you're thinking oh man they probably stirred something up over there too now, there's a good kind of stirring up but there's a destructive kind of stirring up isn't there And I'm talking about that the funny thing is people like that don't usually see it they hop from job to job from group to group from church to church and they get disgruntled in every situation but they fail to recognize that the common denominator in every situation is them have you noticed that wherever you go, you're there? <laughs> it's funny there was a, a person last night who came up after the service and they said they said, uh, "Pastor Steve, I I I think I'm that person." And I said, "Oh man, may the Holy Spirit bring his pile driver and bowl you over. <laughs> bring you to repentance and being forgiven and having spirit of God shift your mindset so that you see out beyond your little myopic vision right now (laughs) these people think it's it's other people who are all all messed up right everywhere they go yeah I left that job there a bunch of jerks over there I left that church a bunch of idiots it's always other people's problems Paul said do nothing out of selfish ambition wreaks havoc There's a kissing cousin to selfish ambition, another unity killer, and that is vain conceit. See that next? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You could call that a proud heart. This is a person who is puffed up, conceited, delusional, who feels superior to other people, like I'm better than everybody else. Wants the glory for themselves. In the original language, this word is only used here in the Bible, only here. And it speaks of someone who craves to be recognized, who craves the spotlight. Look at me. Notice me. Why isn't anybody noticing my awesomeness? What's the matter with you people? That's the attitude here. This is the person who can't stand it when somebody else is successful. When someone else gets promoted ahead of them, they cannot rejoice in that. It grates on them. Because they feel like it's at their expense. They're thinking, that should be me up there, not them. That should be me getting those accolades, getting those rewards, getting that promotion, getting that raise, getting noticed. That should be me. You know, pride kills a lot of good things, doesn't it? And it is poison to relationships. It's poison. No wonder God hates pride. It's a unity killer. And then he speaks of a self-focused mindset. Another unity killer, uh, unity killer. Look not only to your own interest. And you can see how these are all related. They, they feed off each other. They fuel each other. He's talking about self-focus. Like all I see is my stuff, my life. I'm, I'm not seeing others' interest. I'm not hearing their opinions. I'm not giving thought to what this other group might want. All I can see is my own stuff. So these are the unity-killing attitudes Paul points out. He must have heard that certain people in that congregation were manifesting these attitudes. I'm sure as a pastor, as a shepherd, it hurt his heart to know that the unity there was being hijacked by people who had these mindsets, selfish. He felt compelled to confront it. But he also wanted to point out the godly attitudes that actually help unity in the church and, and by mentioning several of those i think he was also showing the philippians what repentance looks like let's look at those the unity helpers first humility in humility he says humility you know what my flesh hates to be humbled but my spirit craves it unity is born out of humility pride exalts my view of me and puts me in competition rivalry with other people but humility on the other hand means having an accurate view of myself and that always leads to harmony humility get this now involves seeing myself as God sees me the truly humble person is not walking around saying woe is me I'm nothing but a worm I'm worse than dirt that's not true humility True humility is a person saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I've been chosen by God, I'm redeemed by Christ, I'm a saint, a servant, a son, a worshiper, a disciple, a missionary for Christ, and yet those identities were not my own doing. I didn't earn them, they were bestowed upon me by Jesus Christ. That is humility, having an accurate picture of who you are in Christ. What do I have, Paul wrote, that I did not receive? It all comes from God, right? And that's humbling. Well, think about humility. How, how many of you have discovered that God doesn't mind humbling us from time to time? Have you figured that out yet? He doesn't mind lining up and orchestrating circumstances to, you know, puncture our pride and humble us. doesn't mind it at all because he knows that humility is good for our spiritual growth. He also doesn't mind bringing people into our lives who are humble brothers and sisters who manifest this mindset of of Christ. I have several friends who are very talented and very humble, and I so appreciate their outlook. I'll just add that when we're looking for people here at New Life to invite up into leadership here, humility is near the top of our list of desired qualities. I mean, I've shared this with you before, but I just don't trust anybody who hasn't had the snot beat out of them yet. <laughs> who hasn't been through the meat grinder. God just, when he does that in a person, it changes their heart. And they're more usable and pliable in his hands from that point on. Self-promoters make poor leaders, and the Lord hates pride, especially in those who lead. But he loves the lowly in heart, right? He says he's close to those who are contrite and lowly in heart. So unity is born out of humble hearts. It's also born out of an honoring attitude. He says, consider others better than yourselves. The word means superior. Think about this now. In humility, consider other people more superior than you. Whoa. (laughs) And that manifests itself in an honoring attitude. So I know some married couples who've been married 30, 40, 50 years and when I I observe their relationship with each other and I ask what is it that has given them such a quality of relationship for all these years, inevitably when I look close and inspect closely, I'll see an honoring attitude. That they are honoring one another, almost trying to outdo each other in honoring each other. It's beautiful. Leads to unity. When we're preferring one another above ourselves and then he says another unity helper an others oriented outlook look to the interests of others this means having the inclination to promote other people ahead of yourself let them go first rejoice in their success in their promotion others before self if you've ever had someone in your life who who came up alongside you and said, you know what, I am here to help you get where God wants you to go, then you have encountered this kind of a person who has an others-oriented mindset. So I think what Paul was saying here in these verses is this. Philippian church, see these self-centered attitudes within you. See how they stir up conflict and division and strife and break down community and hijack your relationships and hurt the body of Christ. For Christ's sake, Get your eyes off yourself and get your focus on others. Isn't that what he's saying? Put others before self. After all, he says, that was the mindset of who? Of Christ Jesus. Adopt the mindset of Christ. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ in verse 5. Or let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, the mindset of Christ is others before self. Would you say that with me? Others before self. Now say it like you mean it. Others before self. That was the mindset of Jesus Christ. You know, as we step into this 50 day challenge together, this is the first mind shift we encounter. Others before self. Putting the needs and interests of others ahead of our own, in our marriages, in our friendships, with our co-workers, with our bosses, in our small groups and ministry teams, in our church at large, adopting the mindset of Jesus means putting others before self. This is what was so revolutionary for me. I'm sure I heard it before. I'm sure I'd seen people who live this way. But the first epiphany that needed to happen in me was to be brought face to face with the reality that this wasn't me. (laughs) I don't live this way. The second epiphany was to admit that I was unable to think this way in my own power. I needed someone who does think and live this way to live through me. Enter Jesus. And that's where Paul goes. That's where Paul takes us, doesn't he? Look, look Look at this person who embodied this concept to the fullest. The ultimate selfless servant, Jesus Christ himself. The picture that Paul paints here of Christ. Verse 6, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clutched or held to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was less than two months ago that Pastor Jay, in our December series, walked us through this beautiful passage phrase by phrase. So I'm not going to go in depth today. But what I want you to see is the general trajectory of the servanthood of Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see that he made seven selfless decisions in order to put others before self and come and meet the deepest need of humanity. Do you see it? Seven steps down to our level. First, he relinquished his position. It was a decision he made. It was a choice he made to leave his heavenly home to come here. Then he released, he decided to release his rights and privileges, his heavenly lifestyle, the worship of the angel. Everything he enjoyed in heaven, he chose to leave behind. Then he embraced servanthood, did he not? born to a peasant Jewish family in a little hamlet in a far distant corner of the world, not born in a king's palace, not born into royalty, taking the nature of a servant. And then, to put others before himself, he he identified with the people he came to serve by becoming one of us, by putting on a robe of human flesh. It never ceases to amaze me that if any of us had lived in Nazareth, in those days and maybe walking down a dusty path and a little Jewish boy walked by us named Yesu that we would have been walking by the creator of the universe. Wow. Being made in human likeness. and Then he decided to accept treatment from others that was unfair. It says he humbled himself, came into his own and his own received him. What? Not. He submitted to authority, did he not? It says he became obedient. Obedient to who? He was obedient to his parents. He was obedient to the the unjust Jewish authorities that hated him and wanted to have him crucified. He was obedient to the Roman authorities who cooperated with those guys. He was obedient to the Father in heaven because it was the Father's plan that he die for the sins of the people. Submitted to authority, and then it says he laid down his life even death on a cross. The most humiliating kind of execution reserved for the scum of the earth criminals of that day. And he said, I'll do it in order to put others before self. Something I don't want us to miss is this. Paul had a habit of connecting everything to the gospel. You could call it a gospel reflex, I guess. No matter what he was talking about, no matter what behavior he was urging upon people, Paul, as a matter of course, always brings Jesus into the conversation, (laughs) particularly his death and resurrection and his exaltation. And why is that? Listen, here's why. Because it is not the law that has the power to change the inclination of our hearts. It is only by hearing and believing the good news of the gospel that the inclination of our hearts is changed. So I could get up here and get all red-faced and foaming at the mouth and spitting into the third row and say, you people put others before self. Dog on (laughs) it. And I don't think that's going to change your heart. But when you hear all that Jesus Christ has done for you and hear it again and again and again and again and you believe it and believe it and believe it, there's a power there. And it makes you want to put others before self. See, that's a change in heart. We're not talking about just behavior, just mechanics here. Go out and do the right things. We're talking about a a heart change. Just one example, a story I heard last night. A guy said, you know, there's a family in our community who recently tragically lost a child. Somebody in our church heard about that. They gathered some other new lifers together. They immediately headed over to that family's home, asked, what can we do? They steam cleaned all the carpets in their house. They ministered in practical ways, everything they found, the ways they could help, they did. And they loved it. You see, it's the power of the gospel of Christ taking root in the hearts of Christians that gives us the want to, the desire and the power and ability to do what's unnatural and put others before self. Does that make sense? It's the work of Jesus in us. We say this a lot, right? We love because he first loved us. We love others because Jesus first loved Loved us. It's Christ's love for us that empowers and motivates us to love other people by putting their interests and their needs ahead of our own convenience and comfort. It's a work of God in us. It comes through being reminded of what Jesus did for us. Well, Paul could not resist the opportunity to move from exhortation to exultation which actually is what all good preaching does, it moves us to worship, it moves us to praise, it moves us to adoration of Christ, right? This is is not so that we can all sit around and pat each other on the back and say, look how selfless we are. Man, we are awesome servants. This is not what this is about. This is about bringing us to a place of being in awe of Jesus in a new and fresh way, to behold him again. So let your heart be lifted to the heavens as we read Paul's hymn of glorious praise as he finishes out this section. It celebrates the promotion of the servant. Verse nine, therefore, therefore because Christ came down to our level, therefore because Jesus made those seven decisions in putting others before self, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Don't you like that? Their knee will bow too. Satan's knee will bow one day and declare Jesus is Lord. I want to be there. (laughs) I want to be there. Every knee will bow. Every tongue, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father what's Paul doing well he's just breaking into worship isn't he can you imagine that Roman guard chained to him like what's going on with this guy getting all excited about a dead guy well Paul knew he wasn't dead he's breaking out in worship but he's I think he's doing something else I think he's subtly helping the Philippians to get back on the same page by reminding them of why we were all created in the first place what's the last phrase of that section to the glory of God. Well, that's why we're all here, right? To glorify God. He knew that if they would just all return to that core principle, the reason for our existence, that they would be well down the pathway to restoring harmony in their church. You want to know the best way to regain harmony in your marriage? The best way to deepen a friendship? The absolute best way to have unity in a church? Get everybody on the same page with regard to this. Hey, we're all here to glorify God. That'll bring you together like nothing else. Two spouses living together, but each committed to their own agenda. Man, that's a recipe for discord, fighting, arguing, misery. But two spouses united around living for the glory of God. That cannot help but experience Sweet harmony, even in the tough times. Two, or friendship, based on a shared love for golf or racing or the Buckeyes or running. That's good, that's fine. But if you want your friendship to go to a whole other level of connection, then decide that no matter what else you do, you're going to glorify God together. Maybe you're at odds with someone today. Maybe you're in a relationship that is fractured and, and you're not... You're crosswise with each other. The first step in restoring that relationship may be today to realize anew and afresh that it is not all about you. It's not about your glory or mine. It's about Him. You're not the Lord. I'm not the Lord. He's the Lord. (laughs) He has the name that is above all names, not you or I. He's the one to whom all knees will rightly bow, not me, although I would like at times to believe I'm the king of my own little kingdom and I want people to bow down and worship me and do my bidding. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not the king, he's the king. He's the one whom God the Father has exalted to the highest place, not me. Just that mind shift, that attitude will go a long way towards restoring harmony. And Paul puts it all in, Clear perspective, doesn't he? Just a few weeks after the Holy Spirit ambushed me in front of dorm 14, somebody shared with me this little poem. It just kind of encapsulated the work that God was doing in me. I've never forgot it. It goes like this. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be, oh, let me live for others that I may live like Thee. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be, Oh, let me live for others, that I may live like Thee. For some of us, thinking like that would be a huge mind shift, wouldn't it? I, um, I truly hope you'll be all in with this 50-day mind shift challenge. It all begins today. This is day one today the very first devotional in this little devotional guide. I looked it up last night. The first one was written by Jay and Janet Firebaugh. So you know it's going to be good. And it comes right out of the passage that we are talking about this morning. I'm telling you that God aims to change you and me from the inside out. Let's be open to the transforming work that Jesus wants to do in us. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God and the people of God to cause us to think more and more like Jesus. Let's pray together. I wonder how many of you, as you think about what we talked about today, and this challenge that we're taking on as a church, how many of you would just lift your hand and say, Steve, I'm, I'll be all in, by the grace of God, I'll be all in with this 50-day mind shift challenge you can you can count me in would you lift your hands praise God many 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 of us I'll pray for all of us in a moment that we'll we'll take it seriously and that God will work in deep ways in our lives this morning we talked about unity and um, I'm wondering how many of you would say right now Steve I'm enjoying the peace of God in all my relationships these days and I am really thrilled about that would you lift your hands Peace of God is pervading my relationships. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank him for that. There may be some of you who, that's not the case. You're in conflict. You're at odds with someone. There's disharmony there. And and maybe you would say, but but the Lord is speaking to me about taking his pathway for resolving that conflict, for doing my part to move towards that individual. Could I see your hands? Because I'd like to pray for you. All right, you can put your hands down. And for some of you, what today might be about for you is receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Every knee will bow to him one day. How much better for it to be done willingly now, you bowing your knee to the Son of God, you saying, Jesus, I, I desire you to be my Lord, to save me from my sins, and maybe if that's you today, maybe you'll just in a few moments come up and talk to one of our prayer partners and say that to them. to say, I, I, I need Jesus in my life and they would love to guide you towards that. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit lifts words from off a page or off a screen and lands them hard on us in ways that change us forever. Lord, as I prayed earlier, I pray you take this rich passage and apply it to each person in the room today, Lord. You must do this. There's a thousand different applications, Lord. Customize a word for every person here today. Speak strongly to us. And Lord, now as we respond in worship, we want to glorify the name of Jesus. Receive our worship, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So let's stand together and let's Minister to the Lord in worship, also to each other. If you'd like to come and receive prayer from our prayer partners, they would love to pray with you about whatever might be on your heart. Let's respond together.